obviously Rocketeer, great start to directing, and, and you had done Honey, I Shrunk the Kids before that, but then you've done so many other great films afterwards. I wanted to, to uh, pick your brain about some of those. I was curious, though, when you have a movie like Rocketeer, which I don't think it was necessarily seen as a success at the time, mm-hmm. how does that affect the career of the director? Are you like not a non-touchable or do you just keep going on? Cause I know there are a lot of directors that they just seem to produce one not so great film after another. It's a funny sort of equation. I mean, they, it was a surprise to everyone at the studio uh, at the time at Disney that the, that the Rocketeer didn't do better. And they were all sort of bewildered about why it didn't do, uh, it, it didn't do better than it did. So, had they known it was not what they thought was going to was was going to be uh, a box office success when it got released, that probably would have had a different effect. But you know, I mean, anyone can make a bomb. Not that that was a bomb, but I'm just talking about in general the way that the way the system seems to work. You, everyone is allowed one uh, unsuccessful film. You know, and a film that maybe I should say it loses a lot of money. If you do two of those in a row, that can pretty much be the end of your career. It's a funny business. You know, you can you can make film after film that sort of doesn't make a lot of money but doesn't lose a lot of money, and you can you can you can make a career out of that for your entire life. But two big bombs in a row, and that's 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 pretty much you know your your limit. I've seen it happen more than once. You know, the Rocketeer eventually made money. There was a lot of uh, speculation about why it didn't do better the opening weekend. I think we talked about this last time about the, the one sheet being something that a lot of, a lot of uh, people thought it was an animated film, even though there had been trailers running and everything. Who knows? It's all a mystery to me. But when I turn over the print and it's the, the answer print and it's done, I, that's sort of the end of my input. You know, I don't market the films, and I don't. That's when I start my vacation. So, but obviously, you bounce back from that. You had the Page Master, and then oh God, oh no, 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 no. I'm glad you brought up the Page Master because I've never spoken publicly about that picture, which I've never seen. I, I never saw the the finished product, and I never read the script, which I thought was. I have to say, I thought it was pretty dreadful, but I. Uh, I came in to direct 10 days of live action, and that was my only involvement with the picture. I, I, I turned in a cut. I was off doing something else, and the producers of that film, who will, whose names will not be mentioned, uh, recut the live action footage without my input, which is a huge DGA infraction. You know, what I should have done at the time was called the DGA and brought it to everyone's attention that these that these guys did this without telling me about it. They made the cut much worse, and I don't know who did it or even why they did it because the cut was, in my opinion, was working much better. That was just something that you see it among the amateurs in Hollywood. But, you know, these guys I thought were more professional than that. And um, like I say, I've never seen the picture I don't ever intend to see the picture. I never read the script, except for the live action. And I have crossed it off the bottom of my resume 
and may the name Pagemaster never be mentioned again because it was, uh, you know, I was very, very disappointed in that group for doing that. It's something that, you know, it's, it was really unprofessional and the movie was, I, I, from what I've heard, it was pretty stupid anyway. And, you know, I, it's one of those things where, uh, I was paid to come in for for a few weeks and do some prep and shoot for 10 days and then, you know, I'm done and blah, blah, blah. And it was a mistake. I should, never should have done it. Never should have gotten involved with that group. But, um, you know, how do you know until you until you get there and you do it? But um, let's not talk about it ever again. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. But Jumanji was definitely a hit. Jumanji was a lot of fun. There were a lot of uh, great people involved. You know, I had my favorite production designer, Jim Bissell, designing it. Tom Ackerman shot it for me. You know, Robin Williams had originally passed on the script. And the writer, Jonathan Hensley, and myself, and Jim Bissell, and the the, uh, first AD, Betsy Magruder, stayed up all night, one night, rewrite the script because we knew, we had heard why Robin said, I don't want to do it. And we, we only had like two days to turn it around. It was, and you know, Jonathan didn't, he didn't have time to do it alone. So we all sat up overnight. We, we made these changes. We turned it in the next day, literally like, you know, nine o'clock the next morning. It went to Robin he said, okay, I'll do it. And so it was, uh, you know, it was one of those really weird uh, and and wonderful moments, I think, in my career where we, we sort of felt like we, you know, we pulled it out of the fire. But um, Robin and the entire cast was, uh, they were delightful. Bonnie Hunt was, was uh, amazing and hilarious and uh you know it was it was a lot of fun it was everyone was having a really good time and unfortunately we were trying to make vancouver look like new hampshire in the summertime we were shooting in vancouver in the winter trying to make it make trying to make it look like new hampshire in the summer so you know i think the whole time we were there we probably had like three days of sunshine it was ridiculous but um you know, if you're into the story, you don't really notice stuff like that. But um, it was great. I had a lot of fun. My old pals at ILM doing the visual effects and all the, uh, at the time, was fairly primitive CG animation. It had only been three years since Jurassic Park, which was sort of the, you know, the pioneer of CG animal character animation, you know, with the dinosaurs and everything. And they'd come quite a ways, but they had some, some challenges like fur, you know, on the lion and the monkeys and things like that. But it was a, you know, it was sort of a mix because we, we didn't have the budget to do everything for CG. So we had to build some stuff. We had to build the spiders and we had to build a lion puppet because we couldn't do everything. Couldn't afford to do everything CG, but, um, it was a lot of fun. As I remember, I haven't seen it of course since 1995, but, uh, I remember, you know, the, Cast and crew screening was a lot of fun, which is sort of the last time I ever see the, the picture. It was uh, it was a pleasant memory, especially for Robin. Yeah, you know, Robin Robin was he was a great guy. I mean, everybody said, oh, he's 
you know, he'll go wild and you'll, you know, he'll just start ad-libbing. And he didn't at all. He never ad-libbed a single line. He would ask for a couple of takes to try something different sometimes after we had done what was on the page and what we had all agreed that, the, you know, the, the scene was about. And he said, hey, let me try something. And he would he would do a, you know two or three takes and try a couple of different things and sometimes it's it was it's in the cut and sometimes it's not but he didn't ever just go off and start start being Robin Williams and it was it was it was great it was a lot of fun. It seems like you've had movies that have had sequels to them but you've never really been involved with a sequel other than coming into Jurassic Park three. What was that like coming into that one? I don't like sequels much. You know, most film trilogies or beyond trilogy, four or five, six, they're never conceived as sort of these multiple stories. You know, somebody comes up with a with a story and you make a film and it's successful, so the studio wants another one and another one after that. But um you know, after Jurassic Park came out, I saw Stephen at the premiere and I said, Steven, I, I love that movie. If you if you decide there's going to be a sequel, I'd love to, you know, be considered for it. He said, okay, great, thanks. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk later. So he ended up doing the sequel, The Lost World, and then he, and then I went off and did uh, October Sky, and he called me and he said, wow, what a sweet movie. Do you want to do do you want to do the sequel? Do you want to do Jurassic Park 3? I said, well, Stephen, I wanted to do Jurassic Park 2. I said, but yeah, but yeah, of course. Of course I want to do Jurassic Park 3. I mean, you know, uh, who could turn down an offer like that? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's a great franchise and the toys you get to play with, you know, dinosaurs. And Now there we we also built animatronic dinosaurs, but... It wasn't because we couldn't afford the CG. It was because we wanted more interaction with, you know, the people and uh, like the airplane and stuff like that, where they're they're really interacting with everything. I really found it to be a real return to form. I go back to three as um, my favorite of the series. Actually, I thought that the characters were really there, and yeah, the effects and everything. I mean, the effects in the first one, as you were saying early earlier, they set that high water mark and mm-hmm. very few films have ever come close to that which is kind of funny to me that we're I'm still looking back at, at Jurassic Park and saying like this was where we're at we're supposed to have moved forward but for you I mean you've been involved with movie special effects throughout your whole career I mean what is that like having this kind of toy box of Jurassic Park 3 and being able to create these creatures and and have this this new technology at your fingertips it is evolving so fast that it's um, you know it's it's improving every six months every year it's getting better and better and better and this, the stuff that's being done now you know compared to what was done in in Jurassic Park 92 it makes it I guess it's it's pushed the envelope a lot and pushed the boundaries, but it, it, you know, in in the Jurassic Park movies, the effects were used so effectively to help tell the story. They weren't wasted. You know, there was never a gratuitous effect that said, "Hey, look at this wonderful visual effect." They were all in service of the story, as as vis- visual effects should be. And I think that you know, because you can 
put anything you can think of on the screen, that's what happens a lot these days. You get a lot of visual effects that they sort of, you know, shout at the audience, hey, look at this great visual effect. It's not really helping tell the story. And in fact, it's sort of stepping outside the story, which I think is exactly what visual effects should not do. You know, they should they should only be in service of the story. And that's what I, I try to keep in mind when I'm, when I'm uh, you know, designing visual effects sequences and work with my guys to do that is it don't you know don't show me something I don't, I don't want anybody to come out of the theater saying hey what what fantastic visual effects i want the visual effects to be absolutely invisible you know i want them to enjoy the story and and the characters and the and everything else about the film including the visual effects but i don't want the visual effects to steal the show i'm always so surprised to see alexander payne's name on the script for that alexander payne and um, Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne wrote a draft that sort of um, got the story going in the right direction. And then Peter Bushman came in and wrote sort of what, be- what became the shooting script. But, you know, there was a, there was a, a whole different story for Jurassic Park 3 that we were struggling to make work. And it was, you know, it wasn't quite getting there, but we had a, we had a start date and we were, you know, it was, it was, it was tough, but we had all the dinosaurs designed, the Spinosaurus and everything in the, you know, designed in the computer and modeled and everything. And, uh, David Kep, uh, I think, I think we sent him the draft to read just to get his comments on it. You know, he'd written the first one and he said, why don't you guys do something really simple? What about a story about a a husband and wife who are separated and their son gets stuck on the island? He, you know, he goes with the goes with the mother's boyfriend and he gets stuck on the island because one of the one of the things about these these films, especially by the time the third one came along, is what do you do to get people on the island again? The first time, you totally believe it. The second time. There's a you know there's a there's a plausible reason for them to go back. Why would anybody go back to this island the third time? You know, and of course it has to be somebody's doing something illegal, and um, you know an accident happens and they get stuck. And but he came up with this idea. Said, why don't you guys do something like this? And it was so much better than the script we had been struggling with to make work. And this now we were five weeks out. When we started shooting, we didn't have a complete script, which happens a lot in Hollywood. It's it's definitely not the ideal way to make a, a movie, but we didn't have a uh, we didn't have a shooting script. Uh, Peter Bushman was literally at times like two days ahead of the shooting crew. You know, he was <laughs> running to try to stay ahead of us and and get pages and scenes. Uh, written that we knew we could shoot, you know, in a few days, but it was, so I guess my, my point is we never could sit back and say, okay, here's the movie. We were in, in, in many ways, we were sort of making it up as we went along. Uh, in fact, when we, we went to Hawaii to shoot, you know, all of our jungle stuff there, we didn't have an ending. We had to come back, finish the stuff on stage, write an ending which, in my opinion, is a, is a little bit abrupt. It's my, you know, one of the, my least favorite parts of that film is that if I feel like it ha- all happens too fast. We went back to Hawaii a second time just to shoot the ending. 
and to do, and to do a couple of reshoots. But um, you know, it's it happens a lot. You you're you're locked into a release date, which means you're locked into a start of principal photography and a you know completion date and all this stuff. And you're sort of shooting a schedule more than you are a, a script. It's you know, with, you know, in our case, we really were shooting a schedule because we didn't have a script. But um, you know, it's frustrating, but you it it does force you to sort of think on your feet a lot. You know, I think it turned out pretty well. Obviously there were things I would do I'd do differently if I could. True of every film, which maybe is another reason I never watch them because I know I can't fix them. But um, you know, it worked out okay. That's amazing that it turned out as well as it did. I I I don't disagree. Again, another wonderful, wonderful cast of actors. I mean, I'm a huge Michael Jeter fan, so I love when he shows up in that film. Yes, yeah, he was he was he was a lot of fun. A great cast all all around. Now, I had read that The Wolfman was ready much earlier than when it actually came out. Is that true? It wasn't. I wouldn't say it was ready. We we went back to to London, and we did a uh, we did a lot of reshooting on that. So there was had had it if you're referring to the original schedule when we were supposed to lock the picture and deliver it yeah from that date to the mm-hmm. release was a was a long time was I don't know how many months but we went back and we reshot a whole bunch of stuff in the in the uh the fight in the burning house at the end and all that stuff but you know the the wolfman I actually I like the wolfman because it's such a beautiful film Shelley Johnston shot, I think, one of the most beautiful films that I've ever seen. You know, in in the the subtlety of his lighting and the interiors, and you know, shooting by candlelight and everything, it's just it's just amazing. So I really love the way it looks. It was it's one of those things where, you know, they I had I had three weeks of prep on that picture because I I, I took it over, you know, from an, another director. And again, you know, you've got a start date. You have to start uh, shooting on that date. So most of my prep time on that was literally saying, I'll take that instead of that. You know, it was like people were bringing me choices to what do you want this, 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 or this. I said, I'll take that one. It was just, I, I felt like I was playing catch up with decisions that hadn't been made because no one was there to make the decision, you know. It was pretty frantic, but I, I found a great crew in the in the UK crew there that I used exactly the same crew, literally almost almost down to the to the the person on Captain America. I literally finished the Wolfman, started prep on Captain America, you know, made sure everyone was available, got the exact same crew. It was fantastic, you know. There's just a, they're great great crews over there they're they are um the craftsmanship and the you know the art direction the construction everything is just amazing you know it's sort of it sort of feels like the golden age of hollywood in a way with somebody like the rocketeer not a lot of people knew who that character was before you took on this project but with captain america the guy's got so many years of history was there any sort of trepidation about approaching a character like that not really because i am not i wasn't a fan of the captain america comic books so to me it, i didn't feel like i had to live up to anything and i felt like um 
first of all, I wanted to do the origin story of Captain America. You know, his World War II origins. There was another script that had been written that was sort of, it started in World War II and then it jumped to the present day. I think it had a book in back in World War II or something. And it wasn't really the origin story. It was a modern day story, which is what the Marvel guys in New York had wanted. They said, let's let's make it contemporary. And uh, the production guys, Kevin Feige and Louis um, D'Esposito and Stephen Broussard, agreed with me that it should be the origin story because you only get one chance to tell the origin story and you, and why why not tell it first? So we were able to convince them that, you know, here's a here's a great story, let's tell the World War Two story. We can make it we can make it fun for a contemporary audience and uh you know, we sold them on it and I think that you know, not that I've seen every superhero movie ever made, but I think it to me, this is this stands out as being something unique and, and different and it's one of my favorites. You know, and I had a great time shooting it. And the, the the production guys are very, very supportive of the filmmakers. You know, they really help you make the film that you want to make. In fact they there were a couple of times when they said, Hey, let's make this sequence a little bit better, let's go get some more money, let's, you know, reshoot a few more days. And let's make it, you know, let's make it great. And uh, you don't often hear that from the guys in charge. You know, it's usually it's usually about how many how many days can we get this down to, and how much money can we save? You know, instead of this, how about this cheaper version? And these guys are exactly the opposite. They just want you to make the best movie. So it's great. That was another one where special effects used so well to tell the story, especially when it came to Chris Evans before the Super Soldier serum. You know, just the mm. way that he, you transformed him into the scrawny character, just amazing. It, it was just, uh, it worked so well. And I just kept looking at it, like trying to like almost see the seams or whatever, you know, just, yeah. it, it was so seamless, so flawless to see that. It was a really arduous process to do that because we had to shoot every shot that he was in where we knew we had to shrink him down. We had to, sh we had to do five versions of it. Always four. Sometimes there was a, there was a fifth pass. It was basically the scene with Chris Evans as he normally looks. It was Chris Evans in front of a green screen for the scene with a, with a, with a screen behind him. It was the same pass without him in it. And it was another pass with a body double who was the size of the guy we wanted to, we wanted him to end up being. Uh, and then sometimes there was a, just a clean pass with no one in it. Sometimes there was a pass with just the background and no foreground actors because we had to, we had to take him out of the scene. Basically we had to take him out of the green screen, shrink him down and put him back into the scene. We needed everything behind him. You know, so it was a it was a really tedious process to do. And there's this company in LA called Lola that basically did all of the skinny Steve stuff. They do a lot of uh mostly commercials, at least they did, you know, before we we took them on. Commercials, you know, making people look great. <laughs> Sometimes they don't look so great. You know, just making them making them sort of look ideal. But they had never ta tackled anything 
you know, a feature length, something like this. They had, they had done, you know, 60 second commercials. And we had, I don't know how many hundreds of shots we had of, of Steve, you know, so we called him, we called him skinny Steve, but you know, it was a whole first part of the film. I don't remember exactly how deep we were into the film when he gets transformed, but everything before that obviously had to be, we had to uh, affect him. So yeah, I thought they did a fantastic job. I mean, I can't see the seams either. Once he becomes Captain America, is that all Chris Evans, or did he have that's to? All, that's all Chris Evans. We didn't do anything to him after the transformation. That was that was him having worked out for you know eight weeks, <laughs> and before uh, you know a scene like where he comes out of the transformation chamber. Before he did that scene, he would like drop to the floor and do like fifty push-ups in a row. Just so he was as you know as pumped as he possibly could be. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. He was a, he was really a trooper in that because we we put him through all kinds of you know really really tough situations that uh, that he, and he was he was uh, really fun to work with. The more I see that guy, the more impressed I am with him. You know, from yeah. back Johnny Storm that kind of stuff to the mm-hmm. losers, and then just he has just bitten into that Captain America role and just, yeah. it's like, I want to follow the guy in the battle. Right. Yeah. No, he's not. Another killer, killer cast, too, with Hugo Weaving here and Toby Jones. I mean, what was uh, Hugo Weaving like to work with? Well, you know, Hugo Weaving was in Wolfman, uh, which was the first time I worked with him. And when, you know, we were looking for Red Skull, it was like, well, wait a minute. You know, Hugo Weaving, he's a perfect Red Skull. He sort of looks like him already, you know. <laughs> he's got he's got a great face. He's got a great chiseled face, you know, and uh and he'd be perfect for it. And he he was and he used a lot of fun on Wolfman and I I really wanted to work with him again, so uh you know, he was happy to do it. It's great. I had read that you were in, and I don't know how close you were or if this is even true, that you almost directed the, uh, the Hulk movie. Well, there was, a, there was a whole different incarnation of the Hulk way back when, and I guess it would, would have been 96. And it was um, Jonathan Hensley who uh, wrote Jumanji, and I had developed this idea for the Hulk. And Mark Platt, who was, I guess he was head of production at Universal at the time, wanted me to direct it. And I said, I'm not going to direct it, but I will develop it with Jonathan. We had this idea that we both liked. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll help him develop it. I'm not going to direct it. He says, well, Platt said, well, I know that when, you know, you get this script written, uh, when Jonathan gets it written, you're going to love it so much, you're going to want to direct it. I said, no, I'm not really going to want to direct it. But he just wouldn't let go of the idea of me directing it. And then Chuck Gordon uh, one day sent me a script called Rocket Boys that Lewis Colick had written. And I read it in one sitting, which I never do. It usually takes me days to read a script. But I read it. I, I mean, I, I couldn't. I couldn't put it down. You know, I couldn't stopped turning pages and I called Chuck in the middle of the night and didn't get him. I called him at, you know, I don't know, 11 o'clock or something. No answer. I called him the next morning at like eight and I said, Chuck, you cannot send this to anybody else. I said, I'm going to do this movie. He says, he says, great. Does Platt know? I said, no, I'm going to tell him. 
<laughs> he says he's not going to be happy because he wants me to do the Hulk. So I don't know what happened to that version of the Hulk. If it morphed into some other version, the Ang Lee version, or I don't know what happened to it, but I was, I was off in Tennessee shortly thereafter shooting October Sky, which is, I think, probably my favorite film of mine. A little bit better of a title than Rocket Boys, I have to say. Well, you know that it's, October Sky is an anagram, the perfect anagram of Rocket Boys, which is why Chuck, in his superstitious world, is, he, he said, okay, that's it. That's the title. It's got, he says it's, it's, it's an omen. It's got to be got to be October Sky. We didn't realize it was a, an anagram until after we had uh, you know, been considering it, which is really bizarre. You know, it's just that it happened to be an exact anagram. So we never really considered calling it Rocket Boys because there had been several unsuccessful films with the word rocket in the title uh, that had come out, you know, a few years before. And uh, I think Bottle Rocket and Rocket something, I don't remember what they were, but um, Rocketeer, there you go. We wanted to call it something else. It's, it may not be the world's best title, but it's. Uh, I think it's it's more evocative than, than Rocket Boys. That was the first time I saw Jake Gyllenhaal in anything, and I was just like, this guy. I think it was a well. You know, he he had he had a very small part in uh, in City Slickers as uh, as Billy Crystal's son. I think he was twelve years old, and he was only in he's only in a couple scenes. I think so. I didn't even bother to watch it. And I don't think he had been in anything else. Or he might have done some TV. I don't know. But, you know, we, we uh, interviewed probably hundreds of of guys, you know, from age 16 to 20. And we just, we were really not finding the guy we wanted. And we were sort of on the, on the verge of panic because we had a start date too. Jake came in one day and he read the scenes and he left and we said, thank you very much. You know, and we all said, that's it. That's him. I mean, he, he just became that character in the room and sort of showed us who the character was, you know, and it was, it, it's great when that happens. Cause you, you know, you suddenly, you can focus and say, okay, I know who this guy is. He's Jake Gyllenhaal. You know, it was, <laughs> But it was really fortuitous that that uh, we found him. When it came to doing Captain America, you know, you're kind of part of this Marvel universe now, and kind of the forming of the Avengers and all this kind of stuff. Were you beholden to kind of the interested parties as far as having to make this film work within the larger universe, or did you just not find that to be a problem? I didn't find it to be a problem because the story took place in 1940. Right? Actually, I think it was 1943 or 44 in the, in, in the story once he gets into the army. So, you know, the way I looked at it was this happened before any of the, the Marvel, before the Marvel Universe was even formed. You know, this happened at a time when he was the only guy, basically. You know, he was the first you call him the first Avenger. He was the, you know, I don't, I don't know that any of the Marvel characters go back that far, or if they, if they do, that they're even referenced as being uh, from that period. But um, 
I didn't worry about it, him being part of the Marvel Universe at all. Because, you know, when, when those, all those films were made, when, when Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, they, it was before they sort of joined up and became a team. So it didn't really matter. Yeah, in in my opinion, anyway, that he, I mean, he, he, I wanted to make him his own, his own man, his own character, you know, and then let him let him sort of become a part of the team later. Well, I like how they've kind of gone on with some of those characters, you know, the Howard Stark character and the Peggy Carter. I mean, the Agent Carter series was terrific, so it was nice that they mm-hmm. kind of were able to use your stuff as a springboard for that. Well, Louis D'Esposito, who is a great friend of mine, shot the pilot for the Agent Carter series. And he said that, uh, he very graciously said, I was trying to copy your style when I shot the pilot. And I said, oh, come on, Louis. I said, Louis, come on, you created your own style. But, you know, it does take place in the, in the same period. So there's, uh, there's some validity to what he's saying there. You were talking about uh, the early draft where it was more of a man-out-of-time type story. Did you uh, have any sort of pressure to bring him into the future for the, the last bit, the, the third act or beyond? Uh, well, we wanted to, we wanted to end the, the, the picture in the present. You know, the last you know, four or five minutes take place, and we did want to bring him forward, you know, after ha- having been frozen for 70 years or whatever it was but uh you know it was um i think that if you tell that story the origin story and you know that he's going to continue in in modern times you have to sort of you have to sort of tee that up you know and um and i would i would rather have done it at the end of captain america than at the beginning of avengers or or captain america 2 or however you know however you you do it I'd, i'd i'd much rather do it then the pilot that you're working on, can you talk about that at all? Uh, I can only say that it is, it's for DreamWorks and TNT. You know, we shot it in New Zealand, uh, 15 days. And uh, it is, all I can, all I'll say is it is a, it, it, an adventure story. It's sort of an, an adventure story with elements of a love story and a mystery and, uh, you know, a parallel universe. But I don't want to, I don't want to, give anything away. It's a really interesting story. Chris Black, uh, wrote the pilot will sort of be the head of the writing team. If it goes to series, uh, it's called Lumen. I think it turned out very well. And, uh, I know that, uh, that Steven is very happy with it and, uh, it goes to TNT, uh, shortly and, uh, hopefully they'll, uh, you'll be able to watch it. <laughs> you'll be able to watch the first season next year sometime, but, uh, you know, we'll see. You were attached for a little while to making a, um, uh, a film about John Gotti or, um, in my father's shadow, I think it was called. Is that still going on? No, that is, um, that has sort of gone away. Uh, I think there have been many attempts to make that story. It was one of those things where, the story was there. We had a we had a great script, but the money didn't come through, and it just it came time for me to go do something else. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's 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 tough to get independently financed film off the ground these days, and it's, you know, it's tough. It gets tougher all the time. You know, getting to get a movie made, but um, at least a movie that you want to make. There's plenty of movies out there that that 
I could probably get onto that I don't want to make, but you know, I, I was, I'm, I'm past that point in my career. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do. Yeah, it seems like with uh, Lumen, if you're heading towards television, that seems to be the way that so many of the directors that we talk to for the show have headed or are heading, just because it seems to be the place for storytelling and being able to handle, you know, longer arcs and having yeah. that control. Yeah, it is. It's um, there's a really interesting market, you know, for almost anything, any any kind of story in the genre, any idea really. Uh, there's so many venues for um for a series whether it be a limited series or a mini series or you know an ongoing thing that if you have an idea that is commercial there is a network or a cable venue that um that you know would probably be be interested and it's 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 a, it is a much better way to tell a story uh, it's a different, very different way to tell a story. Not necessarily better, but it's you know, in, in TV you focus on the characters, and it's much less about the plot. You don't worry about the plot because you can, you know, the plot can evolve, and the plot you can change the plot. If you're if you're shooting episode five, you can change the plot in episode eight. You know that you haven't shot yet. So, but it's all it is much more about the characters and what they and how they evolve and how they. You know, they change, and I, I really like characters who you think they're the good guys, and they turn out to sort of be the bad guys, you know, and then they come back later and be the good guys again. You know, there's, I was a big fan of Justified for a long time, and the characters did exactly that. You didn't really know who you were going to be rooting for, you know. Television is, is, is interesting because it is so varied, and it's it's easier to get something off the ground. Um you know, it maybe it doesn't pay quite as well up at least <laughs> up front, but uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. And and I have to say that television actors are amazing. I mean, the 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 cast that I had on Lumen, I mean, they are they show up, <laughs> they know their lines, they hit their marks. They're you know they're great. You say, hey, can try it this way. They do it. It's like, oh my god. It's uh, it's like a dream, you know, and they they don't really have egos. <laughs> I'm sure that's not I'm sure that's not true across the board, but um, you know, they uh, I just had a great great time with the cast on Lumen. Great cast. Going all the way back to the beginning of your career, being involved with Star Wars and with Empire and Raiders and all these things, how often do you get calls to be like, "Hey, we need somebody for the special features. Come on and and give your two cents to this, you know, documentary or whatever it is, kind of thing." Not so often that it becomes uh, a burden. I just did one with with uh, Roger Christian, who was the UK art director on Star Wars. And we had um, it was it was really interesting. It, was, it, it wasn't so much an interview as it was just a conversation between the two of us because we had been working on the same film and the same elements of the same film, but we had never met. We'd never spoken. He was in the UK. I was at ILM in Van Nuys, and then later up in Marin County. Uh, so we had a lot. Of, we knew a lot of the same people. We had a lot of the same but different stories about about different parts of the film. And um, it was a really interesting thing. But, you know, the interviews, they're sort of, they, they sort of feel like they're all the same. They have to ask a lot of the same questions. And, you know, there's only so much 
you can you can do with that. But they just put us in a couple of chairs out on the the deck of the tech building at in, at the ranch, and just had us talk about it. And it was uh, neither of us knew exactly what it was going to be, so we sort of just you know started talking and having a conversation. It was really interesting. Are you still waiting for the phone to ring and for somebody to do like the definitive Howard the Duck story to bring you on for that? I worked very briefly on Howard the Duck. I don't think anybody, I don't think there's enough fans of Howard the Duck to uh, to warrant an interview, but uh, I, I worked very briefly on Howard the Duck. I did some, some aerial sequence uh, design and a little bit of second unit, but um, you know, that was a, sort of a troubled production too. And, uh, I was, I, I sort of got tired of the, of the trouble, you know, and I went and did some other things, but, um, you know, it it was, uh, it was certainly a passion project for somebody and it, and it has, it has its fans. Every once in a while I'll meet somebody who says, God, I love that movie, Howard the Duck. Okay. Oh, good. You know, he showed up at the end of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Maybe Howard's going to have his time back in the sun again. Wow. Wouldn't that be great? He can, And he can be CG this time. He doesn't have to be a, a, a small person in a feather suit. Yeah. God, that must That'd have been be so uncomfortable. I don't want to know. Well, hey, thanks, Joe, so much. This has been great talking to you. Thanks, Mike. Best of luck with Lumen. Thank you. I hope it gets picked up. And if so, I hope it goes back to New Zealand. And if it does, I'd love to do a couple episodes just for fun. Yeah. But anyway, like I say, I, I hope I hope you'll be able to watch it uh, next year.